Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I cannot believe it's almost the end of September. I say this every fall, um, but seniors, it is crunch time. It may not seem like it, but you really need to be working on your college applications, and they should be part of your daily and weekly planning and routine, and that is how you are going to put together the best possible applications. Um, If you're still thinking about your list and or how you're going to pay for college, or if you have questions and would love uh, access to more resources, check out our partnership with Edmit. Go to edmit.me forward slash college coach for more information. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the supplements for Georgia Tech and Emory in office hours, and we're also going to take you inside the Northeastern Financial Aid office. But before we get to all of that, uh, we want to talk about too early action or not too early action. And joining me for this discussion is my colleague and former Barnard, Fordham, and Montclair State Admissions Officer, Tova Tolman. Hi, Tova. Hello, Beth. All right. So, uh, not to bastardize Shakespeare too deeply, but uh, to EA or not to EA, that is the question today. So let's start with uh, something pretty basic, and that is, what is early action for those of our listeners who don't know what early action is? Ah, I love when you give me the easy questions. I'm happy to <laughs> define this glossary term. So early action, as opposed to early decision, is a way to apply to a school a little earlier in the calendar year. Uh, typically, the timelines usually anywhere from mid-October. I've seen some early action deadlines, October 15 or so. But traditionally, November 1, November 15 are the big ones. So you apply to the school earlier than that January 1 timeline, and then the school commits to taking action on your application earlier. They'll give it a review and try and get you a decision uh, earlier than that traditional March notification deadline. They typically will turn a decision around in only a few weeks, perhaps uh, around uh, late December. December 15th is often the goal, but some schools bleed it into early January as well. The big sort of defining uh, moment of early action compared to early decision is that you've made no commitment to the school by choosing to go this route. You hear your decision early, and that decision could be one of three things. You could be admitted, woohoo, you could be denied, (laughs) which would be a bummer, but that's your decision for the year, Uh, or you could be deferred to the regular pool, in which case they would review you again later. But here's the thing. If you're admitted, you've made no commitment back to the school to attend. So you have the ability to apply to multiple schools through this process, and it's basically saying, hey, I'm ready to go. I've done my research. My, my applications are prepared. And I, I would love to get my decision a little bit earlier in this timeline. And right. that's the, the main premise here is you hear early, but you've made no commitment. 
Right, which is key uh, because a lot of students aren't ready necessarily to make a commitment quite that early. Um, the only other thing I would add is that you did mention that sometimes these decisions will uh, bleed over into early January. I have also started to see there are some schools where decisions won't come out until late January and into early February. So just as a public service announcement, Regardless of whether or not you are applying in early round, if you still have some regular decision schools, uh, you need to get those done as well and be prepared to submit those because it's certainly possible that you won't even know what the response is from your early action schools before those early decision deadlines. Okay, quickly, um, well, not quickly, but are there restrictions related to early action? We know that unlike early decision, you're not committing yourself. Um and in early decision, you are bound to only apply to one early decision schools. Are there any type of restrictions in that vein with early action? I was hoping you were going to fact check my statement there about how you can apply to many as early action schools as you want. And and the answer is usually not. Uh, most schools will have this sort of open policy, which will allow you to apply literally to as many early action schools as you would like, again, because you're not making a commitment. But there are a handful of schools out there which have um, a different policy that is specifically called restricted early action, REA, is is how we cool kids uh, abbreviate that. (laughs) And basically it's saying, listen, we don't want to make you to – Uh, sort of sign a contract saying you'll attend our school, but we want you to use this as a way to indicate first choice perhaps or that you're really focused on our school. And you don't have to decide that you're going to attend if admitted, but in in utilizing this plan, we are asking you to not submit any other early action applications to other private schools. Traditionally, when the school has this policy, They make an exception for public institutions, uh, sometimes just within your specific state or other public schools in general, because they don't want to limit your scholarship opportunities. And a lot of times at these uh, public state schools, you do need to apply in an early round for best consideration for scholarships. So they don't want to limit your ability to do that, but they do want to limit how many other early action applications you're submitting to other schools with the idea that this would be your only one. So you couldn't be applying somewhere else through an early decision or early action traditional plan uh, unless it fits whatever language they include in their sort of small print loopholes explanation. And and I, and I, what I have to say here, Beth, is that if you are looking at one of these schools that has a restricted early action plan, it's imperative that you read through the paragraphs that describes what the limitations and restrictions are, because each school is going to do it slightly differently. Right. And the, and um, I would just add to that, that there are some schools where the restriction is purely limited to asking that you not apply anywhere early decision, while others are much more expansive, as you Mm. noted. They're basically saying nothing early unless it's your state school or a state school. Um, Okay, so when we think about why you would do early action, I think you've already hit on a few of the advantages, one significant one being that you get an earlier answer, which is always nice. You know, I, I often will have students who are applying to 
Um, maybe they are going to do early decision, but they're also applying to one or two early action schools. And the idea is they may not get into that early decision school, but maybe one of their early actions is a safety. And so they'll kind of have one in their back pocket, which is nice as you go into the regular decision round. Um, what are some other advantages that you can think of to being in that early action round? Yeah, I, you know, I don't want to undercut the importance of the one that you just mentioned, but it can be a huge weight off your shoulders to hear some good news in December, mm-hmm. especially if you don't get the best news from your early decision school. So any of the students I'm working with or chatting with and families in general, I usually encourage, especially if you know, you're you plenty of time to plan, here we are in September still, try and get your early action applications out the door to your no problem schools, to those safety schools, so that you do have some good news heading into the winter for, um, for your other schools. Um, I'd also say that, you know, it's, it's nice to, not only is it nice to hear, it's just nice to be done. I mean, yes. uh, to have less, less work on your to-do list. If you have other schools in your regular decision plan where you're going to be busy working on those supplemental essays, or if you have a lot of homework for senior year, or if you just want to have time to be a kid and be a high school student and focus on high school and be done with your college applications. I love to think of Thanksgiving as a general deadline by which everything should be done. And if you're an early planner and you remain proactive, there's no reason why you can't make that happen. But I think what's important to note is that they're really usually isn't an advantage from an admission standpoint. You traditionally and most commonly aren't given any special consideration in the admission process by applying early, um, unless the the school perhaps accidentally is overly generous in the early round because they didn't anticipate just how much of a climb perhaps their applicant pool would see that year. But that's, that's, I'd say, less common. And traditionally, there is no advantage in the early round for early action. And I, again, I would add to that only that when you look at the statistics, you might think, well, Tova and Beth don't know what they're talking about. And clearly there is an advantage because you might see a slightly higher acceptance rate in early action. What you are seeing, especially at the most selective levels, is that some very, very highly qualified students have opted to go that early action route um, especially at a restrictive early action school and are foregoing perhaps uh, the slight advantage they might get with early decision um, to focus all of their energy and attention on that one school that they have really decided that they want to attend. And thus the pools are extraordinarily not only competitive, but also very compelling. And because they are not locking anyone in, they do often want to admit those students. But um, it does not actually give you the same type of advantage that early decision can give you. And we could probably spend a whole other show talking about that. So we'll leave it at that and talk about um, quickly the disadvantages that you see, if any, in the early action round. Yeah, traditionally not. I think one of the biggest misconceptions out there is if the, you know, a student gets denied in early action, they think, oh, gosh, it, had only I applied regular decision, I would have been given more consideration. And I, you know, I want to shut that one down right away. A school, if, if they think that there's a possibility that they might want to admit you, but maybe something isn't quite there, they're going to defer you and hold on to your application and reconsider you in regular. If you're being denied in, in early, I consider it a, a kind ripping of the Band-Aid gesture to say, hey, listen, it wasn't going to be a good fit no matter when you applied. I think right. the only disadvantage is if you're really rushing 
and this goes into the also, you know, how do I decide if I should apply early action or not? I'd say mm-hmm. if you aren't ready to go, perhaps they do have supplemental questions, additional essays that you haven't yet given time to think about and really edit and re-edit and rewrite. Uh, I'd say the biggest disadvantage is a rushed application that would have benefited perhaps from a bit more time. Also, if you were a student who was on a steady upward trend, uh, maybe ninth grade was a little shaky, uh, a lot of weaker grades, 10th grade, you started to get your feet under you and you improved, you were on a nice upward trend, 11th grade, that upward trend was really strong, it's possible some more strong senior year grades would help your case. And in that situation, you might want to hold off till regular to assure that they will see your fall semester grades in the review process. Yeah, I would say that that has been what I've been saying for years and years, but I'm even seeing um, probably in the past couple of years that even now I'm more suggesting the student just go ahead and apply because it feels like the, you know, the potential to get lost in that regular decision pool um, is, is larger, is more of an issue maybe than having grades that are, you know, like you said, if they, if their only concern is that they want to see improvement in senior year, then they'll probably defer you and wait, right? And if they, um, if they feel like improved grades aren't going to help, then they're going to let you go anyway. So it's interesting how that piece I'm with is you on that, Beth. shifting, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah. I'd say if you're ready to go, if you can get your application out the door, do it. There's really no harm. Yep, I totally agree. And But I think the bis- you hit on the absolute biggest disadvantage, which is if you are not ready to go, if you are rushing to get it done and it's not um, going to be done well, then don't do it. Just wait and do regular decision. Tova. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think this was, I hope this was really helpful to our listeners. I certainly found it very enlightening and I appreciate your time. (laughs) Anytime, Beth. Take care. Okay. Uh, We're going to be back in just a minute and we're going to take you inside the Northeastern Financial Aid Office when we return. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. 
you can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. We are back. And as promised before the break, we are talking to my colleague, Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who also happens to be a former financial aid officer at Northeastern University. Hi, Beth. Hi, Beth. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And this is part of a series that we have been doing where we're asking people who are here at College Coach to talk a little bit about sort of the inner workings um, without sharing any sort of trade secrets, um, but of their their respective offices at the different uh, schools that they worked at. And I'm excited to talk about Northeastern, which I have seen uh, change and kind of grow so tremendously in the time that I've been doing this work. Uh, and so let's, in terms of getting started, how about if you tell us a little bit about Northeastern? I think that might be helpful for our listeners. And Beth, I've also seen a lot of changes. Uh, it's a very selective private institution in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, primarily a residential campus now. Uh, but they offer everything from bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, doctoral degrees. They have a law school, a business school. And in terms of undergraduate students, there's about 14,000 undergraduates. And as I mentioned, primarily residential. And that changed a lot from the time that I originally started there, that they're originally a large commuter school. But what they're really known for is their experiential learning program. Uh, Students have the opportunity to participate in a co-op program. And many students who participate in that co-op program, uh, they can take up to five years to complete their degree, but they're still going to be doing eight semesters of classwork, and they'll be doing three six-month co-ops where they have the opportunity to actually work um, a full-time job and get paid. Um, And a couple of the um, really popular majors, uh, a lot of students apply for the College of Business, uh, College of Engineering, and we also have a lot of students really interested in pharmacy and the physical therapy programs where students would get a doctor in pharmacy or doctor in physical therapy after completing six years. Got it. What you know, North what Northeastern has always been one of those schools where when I have a family say, Oh, we're really interested in co-op programs, but it is it has morphed a little bit. The co-op might be the more common term people are familiar with, but that sort of experiential learning where you're where you're working and getting paid, um, in addition to being doing some traditional stuff in the classroom, is a very, very intriguing concept. And I do think that's probably one of the reasons that Northeastern has really um, kind of shot up there in terms of selectivity and interest. It's something that people seem more and more interested in uh, every year. Tell me a little bit about what you did there uh, at Northeastern. 
Now, when I was at Northeastern University, I spent over 10 years there, and I had a number of different roles. Uh, the first five that I worked there, I actually worked with the graduate law population. So I worked in the graduate law financial aid office. In the last seven years that I was there, I spent working with undergraduate students and their families. I worked with recruited athletes for a couple of years, and then I had just a traditional undergraduate population. But one of my other responsibilities was I oversaw the entire loan department and processing of all of the loans for all of the students, uh, part-time evening students, uh, the graduate population, as well as the undergraduate uh, population at Northeastern. Got it. Now, I've been out for 10 years at Northeastern University. Uh, there's been many changes. Um, a lot of them are for the better. But one thing is I still actually have a number of friends who still work in the aid office there, and I keep in touch with to also kind of keep abreast of things that are going on at Northeastern University. Got it. Tell me a little bit about the aid program there. Now, the aid program at Northeastern University is primarily that they give a lot of priority to uh, need-based financial assistance. Uh, but a number of students also do get merit-based scholarships. Actually, 40%, about 40% of admitted students or 40% of um, the undergraduate population have some type of uh, merit-based uh, financial aid award that was offered to them. When I was at Northeastern, we did not meet full need, and actually Northeastern, is, Northeastern now um, actually meets uh, Full need for most students, if not close to full need. Uh, so that's a big change, and that's actually a big change for the better that they are not uh, doing something called gapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, merit scholarships are awarded uh, to students based on academics. Uh, they can be based on athletics, uh, many first-generation college students. And they also have scholarships that they use to attract uh, students from the Boston public high school system. Uh, And when you're looking at, you know, am I going to qualify for a scholarship, Uh, students have to be in the top 10 to 15% of the applicant pool. So not necessarily that that you're in the top 10 to 15% of your high school graduation class, but top 10 to 15% of all of the applicants who are applying that year. And the average scholarship is between $10,000 and $25,000. So there's no longer any type of uh, full scholarship at Northeastern University other than a handful of uh, scholarships that are given out to students who, who have attended uh, Boston Public High Schools. Got it. Okay. So how does the need-based aid process, process itself work for new students? So students applying, uh, I would assume, as freshmen, but maybe this is, applies to even students who are applying as transfers. And, Beth, you are correct. Um, The process to apply for need-based financial aid is exactly the same for first-year students as it is for transfer students. Got it. All students are required to complete the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. Uh, Northeastern University also requires the CSS profile, which is the College Scholarship Service profile. Uh, Families who are divorced or separated, that there are two-parent households, Uh, Northeastern requires the non-custodial profile supplement. And uh, families who are selected for verification um, do need to provide copies of their taxes through IDOC. I know that that's changed on and off for the past few, couple of years, but this year I know specifically that they're going back to IDOC. Uh, Northeastern University only use, uses the profile uh, for the first year because we felt that it actually did a better job of determining and assessing financial need for families, and we wanted to make sure that we were really giving out um, our institutional money to those students who really needed it. So what happens is 
we automatically package the students. And so students are automatically packaged through the system. But we do 100% file review. We're reviewing all of the files, comparing the information on the FAFSA as well as the CSS profile, and looking for information that didn't match, discrepant information. Uh, so we might have found out that maybe the number in the household didn't match or income information didn't match. Um, and we would go back and ask for more information from the families to clarify that discrepancy. Uh, one area that we could also often find discrepancies is the CSS profile asked some more in-depth questions, asked about interest income, dividend income. So we would use that information to impute assets. Uh, does the asset information match what they should potentially have based on what type of interest and dividend income they're reporting? Another reason that we might actually go out and ask for additional information. Uh, we were a school that used institutional methodology to arrive at what's called as an institutional expected family contribution, and that's the family contribution that we use when meeting financial needs. That family contribution could be lower or higher um, than the federal family contribution, uh, depending on their situation. And also, Northeastern University is a school that does look at home equity when they're um, assessing a family's ability to pay using the CSS profile in the institutional formula. Got it. Uh, Just to clarify one thing really quickly, you said you use the profile for... Did you say you use it for new students or for only for the first year when you're first packaging them? In other words, is the profile something that families with students attending Northeastern are going to be filling out every year, just like they fill out the FAFSA every year? Or was it just year one? I was a little confused, which made me think maybe listeners might be slightly confused. It's only used the first year. So whether it's a you know, first year incoming student or a first year transfer student, it's only used that, that first year. So returning students do not need to complete that CSS profile or the non-custodial profile supplement. Is that because they just keep it on file? Um, because I'm just thinking about in the situation where you maybe have divorced parents, one parent is uh, in a significantly different financial situation than the other parent. They will, Northeastern sees the full picture because they've filled out the profile, but then in subsequent years, only one parent is filling out the FAFSA, and maybe that changes things significantly, do they then just go back to the profile, or how does that work? So that's a great question, Beth. I mean, ultimately, that first year, you know, for that divorce-separated, you know, divorce-separated family, uh, the custodial parent household is filling out the FAFSA and the CSS profile, non-custodial parent household is filling out the non-custodial parent information. And that, we would, you know, keep that information on file, and pretty level fund the student for the four or five years that they were there. Knowing that if there was a significant change, the family would come back to us and let, them, let us know that we would reevaluate their ability to pay. But on the other hand, let's say that the parents are married when the students start school and they get divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe that custodial parent remarries. You know, we're not going back and asking for non-custodial parent information at a later date if that parent divorces. So that's a great question. I mean, it's something that we didn't ask, we didn't ask, and I don't think that they that they do that today. 
Hmm. It is interesting. And I could see that it could be beneficial in some cases, and it could actually be not so beneficial in other cases. But I guess the key message here is if something significant changes, that changes your ability to pay, generally, I would guess in a negative way, because why would you sort of raise your hand and say, hey, we have way more money, so (laughs) we don't want the aid now. But if it changed in a negative way, you would for sure want to um, be in touch with the aid office so that they were aware of that. Exactly. And that was that was very common that if there was a change in circumstances, that we would be probably one of the first offices uh, to hear from that family, letting us know that there's been some change and they want us to reevaluate uh, the financial aid and what more could we give them. Got it. Okay, good. Good to know. In terms of the merit aid process, this is always a question that we get from families. Do you have to apply for the merit aid? Uh, is that additional? Are those additional applications, et cetera? So how does it, and, that, and the answer there, of course, is it depends on the institution. How does it work at Northeastern? So at Northeastern University, there is no additional application required for the merit-based scholarships. Uh, the academic scholarships admissions completely oversaw that process, and when students received their acceptance letter, they also received their merit information at that time. So they would get a nice letter saying, congratulations, you've been accepted to Northeastern University, and we also, we're also offering you a, let's say, $10,000 scholarship that's renewable for eight semesters, because again, being a five-year school, it's still only eight semesters of coursework. Um, And as long as the student maintained that required GPA or whatever um, requirements were laid out, they would get that scholarship renewed each of the years. Uh, Depending on the scholarships uh, or scholarship that's being given out, uh, some scholarships required an interview, uh, which was made up of a committee of admissions officers, uh, financial aid officers, uh, students and faculty. Um, Some of those scholarships are specifically the Boston Public School scholarships. When I was at Northeastern, I sat on that committee and I actually interviewed some of the students um, who were um, being considered for those scholarships. Got it. Now, if okay. students get a merit-based financial, a merit-based financial aid, and they still have additional eligibility for need-based financial aid, students at Northeastern University can get a combination of both. I know at some schools they don't do that, but at Northeastern we. Some students with high need um, who are strong applicants could see actually both in their financial aid packages. But the other thing that families need to also keep in mind is if they do have eligibility for need-based financial assistance and they get a scholarship, that scholarship, even though it was awarded to the student based upon merit, it also reduced down their need. So it's a couple things that they had to think about because we'd often get calls from families and say, hey, my family contribution was this. Why didn't we get any money even though they had this $10,000 scholarship, $15,000 scholarship? And they would often argue with us, letting us know that this wasn't based upon our ability to pay. It was based upon our child being a, you know, a good student, mm-hmm. an athlete, whatever the situation was. Got it. Okay. So very quickly, as we wrap up, um, what can students appeal the aid? So you just mentioned a family calling and arguing about merit aid or, you know, asking for something more. We talked about letting the office know if circumstances have changed. Um, 
I guess in general, it sounds like Northeastern is certainly willing to at least talk to you, but how um, great is the ability to appeal the aid that you actually received? If there's a change in circumstances, we will definitely reevaluate the family's ability to pay. And Northeastern is a school that does not negotiate. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't match better offers from schools. But if there's been a change in circumstances, such as a loss of job, inflated income, out of, you know, high out-of-pocket medical expenses, we ask, this, we ask the family to submit a letter to us with supporting documentation, and it is definitely something that the school will reevaluate and potentially come back with more money, and it's need-based money, not more merit money. Got it. Beth, thank you so much for being here today. I thought that was really interesting to learn more about how they're doing things over at Northeastern, and I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, Beth. Have a great rest of the day. All right, you too. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're doing Office Hours, Supplements for Georgia Tech and Emory. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Looking for the best show about horse racing and handicapping? Want to play the ponies? Join us every week for Winning Ponies with John Engelhart, racing's regular guy, where you'll go inside and behind the scenes with the top jockeys, trainers, agents, and handicappers in the world of horse racing. This show is the perfect complement to the Winning Ponies handicapping website. Listen for top plays for the weekend and the spot play of the week and win prizes just for calling in. Winning Ponies with John Engelhart is live Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Sports Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are at the office hours portion of the show, and we're at the time of year where a lot of you out there are working on your applications and tackling supplemental essays. Uh, Just as a public service announcement, uh, we are doing a number of blogs this fall as well that are tackling different supplements than the ones we're going to talk to on the show. So if you're interested in reading more about um, other school supplements or looking for some advice, suggestions on supplements that you have on your list, uh, check, us, check out the blog, blog.getintocollege.com. Again, it's blog.getintocollege, all one word, dot com. Uh, all right, so... But let's leap into this. I am really excited to welcome my colleague, a frequent guest here and a former Barnard admissions officer, Mary Sue Yoon, uh, to talk to us today about Georgia Tech and Emory. Hi, Mary Sue. Hi, Beth. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. And thanks for joining us. And we are, we are, we're, we chose two schools that have fairly involved supplements uh, because those are the ones that we anticipate students will have the most questions about. Uh, and actually, the first one that we're talking about, the early action deadline. And hey, if you're curious about early action and what that's all about, go back and listen to the first segment of the show because we talked about it there. But um, Georgia Tech's early action deadline is October 15th. So it is less than a month away. Uh, and their supplement is not... Short. It's not super no. challenging, but at the same time, there's a decent amount of writing to do here. So um, I'm going to jump right in. The first uh, question is one that needs to be answered by every single applicant. Uh, so there's no choice here. You got to answer this one. And the question is, why do you want to study your chosen major at Georgia Tech? And how do you think Georgia Tech will prepare you to pursue opportunities in that field after graduation? Uh, Mary Sue, what are your first thoughts when it comes to this question? Right. So this is a, a fairly common question uh, uh, again, uh, across a, many different colleges. But mm-hmm. um, I would say that, that my approach for, for Georgia Tech would be that the student kind of has to think of themselves as a lawyer making a case for themselves. It's not enough to just say, well, I want to study physics because I find it neat. You have to kind of say, why are you interested? What in your background, your back, your past educational experiences has led you to choose this major? And then the second part of the question, how do you think Georgia Tech will prepare you? Do some research on their particular department. What classes do they have that appeal to you? What professors are doing interesting research that you'd like to be involved in? Uh, really lay out a case for why you're a match for their particular programs, and that often does require a student to be more reflective and introspective than they've perhaps thought about already in their their college major process, So, um, and that's why they asked the question. Yes, and I will throw out there that we have done a segment this year and in years past about the Why This College essay, because as you mentioned, it's a very common question. Um, Please, for the love of God, don't say because Georgia Tech is one of the most prestigious tech schools in the country. If you do nothing else, (laughs) just don't say that. They know that. It is not, this is not the place to flatter schools. This is the place to make the connection between your goals and what the school has to offer. Uh, All right. 
So now we come to the section where you actually do have a choice, which this is a relatively new thing, is it not? I seem to recall Mm -hmm. many, many of my students answering option A uh, in the past, which leads me to believe that was the only option. Um, I have not had many students apply to Georgia Tech, but I have had a handful. Mm -hmm. So is this new to give them uh, the choice of three prompts? Yes, I think it is new this year. Um, And it's really, these are questions I think a lot based on wanting to know more about the student's personality, their character. Um, So just kind of a little more about the student so we can kind of dive into them um, to see how those pieces are addressed in each of these. Okay. And and I should know, on the previous um, question, the why Georgia Tech, essentially, the maximum limit is 250 words. That is the same Mm -hmm. for these options. You're going to do one, and it's going to be 250 words or less, which, by the way, is simply a long paragraph, in case you were curious. All right. Yeah. Option A, tech's motto, and hey, make note here, they they call themselves tech in this, but maybe it's Georgia Tech's motto. I could have written it down wrong. So never mind. Yeah. Tech's motto well, is progress. Tech motto. In, yeah. <laughs> they, okay. So, tech's motto is progress and service. We find that students who ultimately have a broad impact first had a significant one at home. What is your role in your immediate or extended family, and how have you seen evidence of your impact on them? Oh, this wording is new, actually. Yeah. So I think for this question, I would think about it as, you know, ask some of your friends, some of your family members, what's the role you play there? Um, you know, I would have thought for myself, uh, if I were to answer this question in my, my younger years, that I'm the youngest of five kids. I was kind of always the family mediator whenever there was conflict. So maybe I would have talked about that. Um, maybe you're the organizer who organizes all the parties or something along those lines. And I think the reason that they ask this question is they just want to kind of get a glimpse into your home life and your personality and kind of see what you're all about. What's the world in which you come from um, and how is that? Would, how might that affect um, your decisions and your college life later on? So that's how I would approach it generally. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And if you're sort of thinking either I, I don't really know and when I ask people they don't really know, then maybe you skip that one because, again, you have right. choices here. So let's right. talk about choice two, uh, otherwise known as option B. Georgia Tech mm-hmm. is always looking for innovative undergrads. Have you had any experience as an entrepreneur? What would you like Georgia Tech to provide to further your entrepreneurial interests? Interesting. I like this one. Mm, right. So I think tech, like many um, technical institutions or, or engineering schools within uh, a larger university uh, is really at the forefront of trying to get at this combination of technology and business that many people are um, expanding upon in, in the, the you know recent years, obviously. Um, so they have pieces on campus that deal with this. They have a very beautiful maker space where students can kind of come with prototype ideas and um, talk about lots of different things. But I think that they're trying to kind of catch that fever from students and find out, okay, so what's the idea you've had? Do you have an idea for a new app? Do you have um, some widget that you would like to talk about? Um, Have you 
put that out there to the world. So the part about, you know, what is your experience as an entrepreneur? It could be, you know, maybe you started a dog walking business. Maybe um, you did uh, computer help for your friends and family. You know, what are the things that you've kind of created your own experience and created your own um, business work and put that out there into the world? And I think that that, it doesn't have to be that you've created already your own multi-million company, million dollar company as a 17 year old, but sort of whatever your idea is and how could you see entrepreneurship playing a role in your future studies, I think is what they're asking here. Yes. And I also think if you haven't had any experience and you're sort of thinking, That's not oh, the question. Yeah. yeah, not the question <laughs> to answer. Um, if you have a great idea that you have yet to be able to act on, maybe you would want to answer this one. But my gut says, if you aren't actually acting on this already, I might stay away from that. Yeah. It might not highlight yeah. something important. Okay. That brings us to the third and final option, option C. In your application review, we want to get to know you better. By the way, they're all looking to get to know you better. Um, But one way to do that is to understand a typical day for you. Describe your typical day. I could see this going very right or very wrong. Yeah. Um, I actually love this question because um, as an admissions officer, I always wanted to uh, be in that student's shoes. And I think sometimes the best essays I read were where the student was able to kind of put me in their shoes and sort of say, yep, here's what I did. Here's kind of my general rhythm of my day and, and how I choose to prioritize my time. Um, so I think this could be very uh, impactful and and a great essay for a lot of students um, if you're sort of talking about the things that you are most passionate about and the things that you love to do. And hopefully those would be represented in kind of your typical day. So that's what I would use this space to do is to, to kind of talk about the most important things to you, whether those are after-school clubs or particular academic interest or research or uh, whatever it might be, get, try and get those, uh, those major ideas of yours on the page for this question. And, and I think it could be really interesting. I'd be, I'd be interested to be a tech admissions officer and reading some of these. So I, I would too. And I would say that my guess is the reason I said this could go very right or very wrong is because this feels like a question that many students will think, Ooh, I want to be, I want to take a creative approach to this. And there's, I would not ever want to discourage creativity. I will say this, they are asking for an essay. And so Mm -hmm. I know the temptation will be very, very real to perhaps just provide like the day and then what you do. And Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, the time and then what you did and then another time and then what you did. And I could even see that working in the right hands. But I think Mm -hmm. even then, even if it was really well done and very creative, I could see myself saying, but it's not really an essay and they do want an essay. So just... Be careful. It's not a list. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a list. They didn't ask you for a list. They asked you for an essay. So you need to be careful about that and you need to make sure that you are still giving them an essay. And by the way, 250 words is just not that many. So even uh, the space you would waste potentially with those timestamps is potentially wasted space, but you can't say for sure until you see it. All right. So that's Georgia Tech. Let's jump into Emory. Um, Emory does not have one question that everyone is required to answer. Instead, they're providing four options, each of them a maximum of 150 words. So now we're talking more of a short paragraph. 
but they ask Mm -hmm. you to choose two. So you're going to write two 150-word essays. And uh, here is what they say. In addition to the common applications personal statement, please choose two of the short answer prompts below. Uh, Option A, what is your favorite fiction or nonfiction work, and in parentheses, film, book, TV show, album, poem, or play? And then the very, very important codicil is why. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it's not just, oh, my God, I love this book. It's so awesome. And this happens and this happens and it's just Mm -hmm. great. It is why. So take us Mm -hmm. through how you work with students on this one. Right. Yeah, and I always have to, just as a general aside for this whole section, I always laugh when students say, oh, it's great, it's only 150 words, it's so easy. And I laugh because that's much harder, actually, to write something that's short and impactful than something where you have no limit. So, um, But in terms of this favorite um, fiction or nonfiction work, I would certainly concentrate on the why aspect of that um, and say, how are you connecting to this particular piece? Again, whether it's a book or a piece of art or something along those lines, uh, what what about it speaks to you and made you pick it as your favorite book? Is it something that has helped you get through a difficult time? Is it something that it has uh, kind of broadened your worldview? What is the part of this that um, speaks to you and that made you pick it and be Try and be as specific as you can in 150 words about that connection. And my one other piece of advice here is please don't write about Harry Potter because it (laughs) seems to have been very impactful on many students. And I read a lot when I was an admissions officer. Um, So try to be a little bit outside of the norm. I would also say try and stay away from the things that are commonly in the high school book curriculum. So things like Pride and Prejudice and Jane Eyre and uh, The Great Gatsby are seen a lot. So I think, try and think a little broader than that. Yep, agreed. Okay, option B, but I do love that one. I would always have answered that one if I was applying. Um, Okay, option B, what motivates you to learn? Interesting. Hmm. So I would think about this from perhaps a particularly exciting project or paper or something that uh, really it just you kind of lost all um, track of time when you were working on it. Um, maybe think about uh, framing it in that way. Um, but essentially, there's a the um, I think that the. Uh, inclination for this question would be for a student to say, well, I'm motivated to learn because, you know, I like these subjects and, and do a, there might be uh, a temptation to do a lot of telling rather than showing an example. Um, and I would say go with an example to kind of show a way that you've um, been motivated in the past and that you've gone deeper on a project because you're particularly motivated by the subject matter. Um, And I think that might be a good way to frame it. At least that's how I would say to approach it. I think that's a great idea. Uh, And I think, again, you want to be... I don't know, when when I see students um, doing this, I just think it needs to be kind of... If you don't have an immediate reaction to that, I don't know if that's the right right prompt Mm -hmm. to respond to. But um, because I do see some students not do such a great job when they're grasping, when they don't really know what motivates them to learn. So if you don't have an immediate, oh, this is totally motivating to me, then maybe you move on. Uh, Option C, what do you want to bring from your community to the Emory University community? 
Right. So I would think about this as a way to talk about continuity from some activity or work that you have already done to something that you would like to continue doing in college, whether that is a particularly meaningful project that you've done, like a service project or a research project um, that you'd like to continue being involved in, Um, or maybe it's more... um, here are characteristics that I find in my community that I'd like to find within the Emory community and I hope to create within the Emory community. Um, but I, I think it's, it's sort of thinking about what, are, what have been the best parts of your high school experience and how would you like to kind of continue the, them um, in your college experience and, and really um, fleshing out kind of why those, those experiences have been meaningful to you and why you feel that they would be uh, vital to any fantastic college experience for you. Yeah. One piece of advice that I would have here, too, is that because you only have 150 words, you probably should go deep on one rather than trying Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, if you were in five clubs, you shouldn't be talking about all five of them in this. Pick one. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. Option D, final option. In the age of social media, what does engaging with integrity look like for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting question. And I, um, uh, and, you know, I always look to questions to see what is the college trying to convey about their values and their mission in the way that they write their questions. So um, obviously, Emory's trying to get across here that they want students who are going to be active in person within the community, um, you know, and thinking about sort of this particular generation and trying to get students to kind of put down their phones and not just be using it for posting to people back home, but also engaging with the community that's right in front of you. Um, I vividly remember when I worked in the Barnard Admissions Office, the president would give this lovely speech at um, orientation every year, which basically said, put away your phones and talk to the people next to you, Mm -hmm. Um, which I I still think is great advice. So I, I think it's thinking about, yes, social media is going to be definitely a part of this generation's and has been a part of this generation's college experience, but how do you um, interact with the community in front of you? How do you, maybe you use social media to interact with that community in some ways, but how do you find um, opportunities to make real in-person connections? Um, because this is not a virtual school. This is an actual physical school where you'll be living as a residential student, and they want you to be present in the moment. And I think um, thinking about ways in which you wish to be present and in that moment um, would be the way that I would kind of approach this idea. Um, So I don't know. What are your thoughts about this one yeah I you know I've seen students stumble with this one um I'm thinking of one in particular who sort of ended up using it as a bit of a diatribe against social media and I'm not sure that Mm -hmm. is accurate I do agree though the whole idea of you know social media has its positives and its negatives and Mm -hmm. ideally you're going to come you're going to engage and that doesn't mean you're going to let go of social media but you know, maybe it's going to take a back seat. Maybe you're going to use it more for saying hi to friends from high school, but then going out um, to the quad with friends that you've just made in your dorm. Um, I think it's a really tricky one. And I, uh, you know, I just, I think that um, 
but I think you've hit on the, the, the crux of it, which is what role, you know, how do you, how do you want to engage with others? How do you best want to engage with others and really thinking about that? And if that's tricky for you and you don't have an immediate reaction or you want to write about something that puts others down, I would probably stay away from this one. Mary Sue, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And I thought this was great. And we got through a lot in the limited time that we have. So I really appreciate it. Um, I want to thank all of our guests today. Next week, Sally is here. She's hosting. We're talking coalition applications, study abroad, and completing the FAFSA. Um, And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm